So, guys, we, we're going to start this uh, series on, called Unsubscribe, and, and today we're looking at the topic of uh, intimacy, intimacy, all by my selfie. All right, that's what, we are, that's what we're looking at. Uh, I'm not sure, I mean, I know that we're a particular age group. Any of you know the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby? Okay, who, who, who's aware of the song, Eleanor Rigby? Okay, okay, and that reveals a lot about, about, about you and your sort of age, I guess, or the age of your soul. Um, so, uh, to, to the rest of you, there's this, there's this line, uh, Father Mackenzie, it's, it's, it's quite, I, I quite like the song, Father Mackenzie, writing a sermon that no one will hear, no one comes near. This is just sort of, we're prolonging the worship service, so um, can everybody please stand again? No. Um, so, so, Father Mackenzie, he writes a sermon that no one will hear, no one comes near. And then the chorus of the song is, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Now, the Beatles wrote this song as a kind of mm, something, there, there was something triumphalist in how secularism has made church redundant, okay? So, John Lennon famously said that we are more popular than Jesus. The Beatles are more popular than Jesus. And, and they were celebrating to a certain extent the fact that, that secularism is now overtaking religion and it's becoming redundant. And to a certain extent, it's almost as if the guys are, are looking at an Eleanor Rigby or a Father Mackenzie in, in bemusement as these people who are still hanging on to, these, to this old tradition, but they are utterly alone. So I, I think that's what's going on in that song. The irony, however, is that of all the systems that's ever been devised in this world, secularism is the loneliest system of them all, okay? And there are multiple driving forces behind this loneliness. The one is that at the core of secularism is what many people describe as expressive individualism, which is basically a fancy way of saying that I am the captain of my soul, I am the master of my destiny, it is complete autonomy, I get to make decisions, nobody tells me what to do. And we've all heard versions of that mantra, right? So part of my new life as a dad is that I cannot feed my boy unless he is distracted by a cartoon. So I find myself in the holiday watching Barbie, okay? And, and, and how she's evolved, my goodness, okay? And like from the Barbie I knew back in the day, it, my sister played with a Barbie, just so that we're clear on that. But um, so... so at one point, she needs to make a big decision. She's very confused. She doesn't know where, where to go. And then you know what happens? Barbie says, oh, I, I think I know what to do. I, I must just look in my own heart. That's what I need to do. I need to look in my own heart. I need to be true to myself. And, uh, and, and, and that is sort of the Disneyfication of this expressive individualism. If you look inside yourself, you will find the truth. And if you are just true to that, then anything, everything will be okay. Can you see how that can very easily clash with church? When we come to church, we are trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to follow the way of Jesus. And we are very much trying to tell each other how to live. 
we are very much trying to point to the good life. I mean, we suck at it, and we, we, we fail, and we forgive, and we try again, by all means. But it's, it's very much at odds with this expressive individualism. Something else that, that perhaps wasn't as rampant in the days of, of John Lennon um, that is fueling this, this, um, this loneliness that we experience today is technology. Right? And I mean, a lot has been said about it, and we are going to unpack some of those things in, in, during the course of this series. But we, we cannot stand boredom anymore. We don't do boredom, all right? So what we do is we distract ourselves with a phone or with a tablet. But just know that most of the time, that boredom somehow led to creativity and led to relationships in the past. So for example, if you are on the Gao train, everybody's now on their phones, where you had sort of 40 minutes to spare, you didn't really know. So in the past, people would look up and you might strike up a conversation with the person next to you and you walk out of there and you've, you've got a friend or you've got a connection or, or something like that. On a plane as well, this used, to be, this used to happen all the time, but now because we are so scared of boredom and we've got all these devices to distract us, we don't have that anymore. And the result is, Increase, increasing loneliness. We are terribly, terribly lonely. Here's the, the irony of sort of this, 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 this Beatles song, all the lonely people, the Father Mackenzies, the Eleanor Rigby's, all of that. Here's the, the irony. Study after study has shown that the Eleanor Rigby's and the Father Mackenzies are significantly happier and relationally connected than the John Lennons of the world. Religious people are significantly more connected, less lonely than, than religious people. So uh, Robert Putnam, he's a Harvard, I think, sociologist, and he wrote a book called Bowling Alone, I think early 90s, and there's a graph in his book that, that looks at happiness in, in America, but I think it's applicable to us here. It's a graph that looks at happiness in the States and it is measured by church attendance, okay? Now, obviously, I'm biased, right? I'm, I want to, to, to get you guys here and keep you here and whatever. But, but this guy, he's a, he's a secular sociologist, and, and he is just measuring happiness, and you can literally see the graph increase in as much as people attend church. There are other things as well. A lot of studies show today that people who live in community and, and who are not isolated, they live longer. So if you live an unhealthy lifestyle, you drink, you smoke, you eat lots of cake, you, you, know, you, you buy condensed milk and, and uh, don't use it for cooking, uh, you, you, you live an unhealthy lifestyle, if you are connected with people and you live in community, you are less likely to die than healthy people who are isolated. I'm not making this up. And it's, it's scientific fact that it's better to eat ice cream with friends than broccoli alone. Okay. <laughs> now, what, what these studies are confirming, what these studies are confirming is what the Bible has been saying for a long time. This comes from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, verses 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and who has not another to lift him up. 
Again, if two lie together, they keep each other warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and three, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We intuitively know that we need community, right? But yet, somehow, we continuously find ourselves isolated. And there are various reasons for this. The one, one of the reasons might be the fact that we are drawn to technology in a certain, to, to a certain extent because it creates, especially social media, because it creates the illusion of companionship without the demands of relationship. Okay, so, so th there's a sense of companionship, but it, it, it doesn't come with all the nitty-gritty and the, the messy um, aspects of having relationships with people. You get many of the same effects on social media. So apparently, when, they, when, when, when you post a photo of yourself and, and, and somebody likes it and, and more people like it, there's a little surge of dopamine. You get a kick out of that. So it, it creates this, 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 this feeling of relationality, but, but it isn't. And we need to be very careful not to confuse followers and friends on Facebook with community. It is at best popularity, but it is definitely not community. In a couple of weeks from now, we're going to talk about cancel culture. And uh, just to, to see how uh, um, collateral your Facebook friends and your following is, we're going to see that these people that might be in your circle at the moment on social media can very quickly turn on you. Burger King ran a very strange promotion a couple of years, know, a couple of years ago where they said that you can get a Whopper, all right, you can get a Whopper for free if you unfriend 10 people, okay? Now, I don't understand the logic, but what I do know is the promotion lasted a day. They couldn't keep up. People were just all too happy to unfriend people in exchange for, for a whopper. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm giving you little vignettes that's happening um, in technology and how it's affecting us socially. So I'm not trying to build on each other at the moment. But a study at the University of Michigan showed that, that we, people today have 40% less empathy than people two decades ago. So technology and social media makes us less empathetic. You know what's the main way of ending a relationship these days, breaking up? Text, WhatsApp, sad emoji, not working anymore. Oh, that's, that's the main way of breaking up today. And the reason why many people do it is because you've got more control over the phone. You don't, you don't have to look this person in the face. You don't have to, oh, I'm really sad about that. Oh, I remember that. We had good moments, blah, blah, blah. You can just end it. It's easy. Now, here's the thing, friends. There's this cliche, this, this mantra that is crept into church that is affecting the subject matter that we are trying to discuss this evening. And that is this idea that, you know what, I, I am spiritual, but I'm not really religious. I follow Jesus, sure, and I, I love Jesus, but the church and the establishment, I, I don't like it. I don't like organized religion, which is why we create the dialogue, because we're super unorganized. But the, <laughs> but the, the point is that uh, this, this typical mantra of, uh, you know what, I, I like Jesus, and I'm very spiritual, but I don't, I don't do church. You won't find second-generation Christians in a family like that. That's the one thing that we need to know. 
the child of the father or mother with that mantra tend to not follow Jesus. That's the one thing that we need to uh, point out. But these people would typically piggyback on Jesus' criticism against the Pharisees because Jesus is very critical of the Pharisees. He says they're going to go to hell and you guys are making it so difficult and Jesus is anti-religion, um, anti-establishment, etc., etc. But you need to be careful how you use that phrase, how you use that, that passage because Jesus continuously says that you must listen to the Pharisees. Don't do what they do, but you must listen to them. So he's saying, I want you guys to go to synagogue. I want you guys to go there. I want you guys to meet together. If they teach you the law, it's going to be good, but don't do what they do. He is not saying that, that don't worry, you don't have to do this anymore. That is definitely not what he's saying. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. It's not a category in the Bible. It is not something that you can do alone. So Jesus said that the religious establishment of his day was standing in the way of God, but he also thought that it is the way to God. So today, the church can very much stand in the way of God, and it happens over and over. We mess up big time. But from a New Testament perspective, it is also the way to God. I want to read a passage from, from the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and it comes from, from chapter 10. And it's, it's kind of lengthy. We're going to read from, no, not really, from uh, verses 11 to 25. Now, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering of sin or offering for sin. It sounds like the, the writer of Hebrews is saying that this old mechanism of religion and the priest and this whole order, it has become redundant. Okay, so now he's reflecting on this exciting news that Jesus is the final sacrifice. And it goes on in verse 19 to say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, we don't have to go through the priest, we don't have to go through all the religious mumbo-jumbo. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from, all, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, so it's a lengthy passage, and, and I, I lost many of you, but, but it's okay. The point is this. When he is talking about, I didn't give you much context to make sense of this, and I'm also not going to give you much context. I'm just going to say that 
the writer of Hebrews is trying to make sense of the mechanism of the cross, trying to make sense of what happened on, on the cross, and he's trying to, to dissect it. And at first glance, he's saying that it's this, this new dispensation. Well, not at first glance, it, it is what he's saying. It's this new dispensation, a new way of serving God, a new way of relating to God. And he says, we can enter with confidence. The law is written on our heart. Now, all these things are typically stuff that we like to hear as individualists, isn't it? We, we all have access to God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through church. We don't have to do this, this, and that. And it is encouraging, and it is true in a limited sense. But notice how he ends. He ends this whole passage by saying, it's wonderful. God did this amazing work. We don't have to go through this system anymore. So now, remember, to, to, to come together, to meet regularly, to come together and to stir up one another to, for love and good works. So he's saying, we don't have to do all of this nonsense, but remember that you guys must come together. Um, and, and this word that he used for come together, for meeting, is the word episynagogue. Episynagogue, where we get the word synagogue from. I mean, those of you who are smart. Uh, synagogue means this is where we, where we come together. Okay, now we have direct access to God, but it is essential that we come together, that we congregate. Now, when we go online, at best we aggregate, but we do not congregate. We we aggregate in the sense that uh, we, we are. We are together, but we are not affiliated in any meaningful way. We're like a bag of marbles, okay? And if you open the bag of marbles, then you've lost your marbles. And you, 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 you don't see that, it's a bad pun, but you, you, don't see, uh, you, you, you don't see these things connecting with each other in a meaningful way. But a congregation and the way that the church is supposed to relate is more like a bunch of grapes, in the sense that they are individual, but the lives of the individual grapes touch one another as it is connected to the life source, as it is connected to the stem. And that is a congregation. Now, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the appropriate way to respond to God's saving work is to congregate. Because in a way, he's saying, we cannot be saved in isolation. We cannot be saved alone. There's an AA saying, not the road agency, but uh, Alcoholic Anonymous, that says we can get drunk alone, but we need to get sober together. And that is so true in the spiritual life. We can sin by ourselves, it's very easy. But inasmuch as we want to follow Jesus, inasmuch as we want to live saintly lives, there's only one way of doing that, and that is together. C.S. Lewis says, Christ, Christ works on us in many ways, but primarily through each other. So the only way, according to Hebrews, according to the New Testament, that we can hold on to this hope, that we can live out this, this, this wonderful reality of what Jesus did on the cross, the only way that we can do that is if we meet together. But there's another word that's interesting. It says we need to stir up one another. We need to stir up one another. Now, I want us to look at that, that, that line or that, that line, yeah, one another. Because you can come to church and you can come to church regularly 
and you can consume a sermon and you can consume some coffee and consume some worship and you can go home and you would not be living up to what this passage is all about. Because the passage is not saying, go to church so that the preacher can stir you up. That's not what the passage is saying. It says that you need to, you need to stir each other up. It is something that, that each and any, every one of us are supposed to do. Everyone has a job. And there's a reason why I think it says, you, you guys need to talk to each other. We need to be in a, in a community where we can uh, promote good works, that we can stir each other up. Because there's a way in which you will talk about Jesus. And there's a way in which you can uh, have an input in somebody's life that I cannot. The way that I think, um, sort of, you know, bad jokes or uh, sport references or whatever, that doesn't connect to someone. But then there's something about your life story that does connect to somebody in this community. And it is your job to stir that person on to good works. It's, not all, it's, it's also not blind and generic. It says, consider how to stir one another to good works. So it's not just saying, guys, let's do good works, all right? See you later. That wasn't a very considered sentence, was it? To consider is, is a bit like, uh, you know, if, if, if you're in a, uh, if, if you sit with a psychologist, then, then the psychologist or any pastoral guy trying to make sense of your story will take notes. Why are they taking notes? Because they are considering What's going on in your life and what is, the, what is the word that you need? What is the path that you need? It is a considered approach. Likewise, we are supposed to consider what somebody is going through, what, what's happening in their life, and to stir them to good works. Does that make sense? Are you with me? All right. Now, the, the, the other thing that is interesting here is uh, the word spur or to stir each other up. Because almost a better translation than to spur each other on is to irritate one another. I'm not joking. A better translation of that word is you must irritate one another, you must annoy one another into doing good work, into living out the gospel. But here's the thing, friends, and this is probably why we don't live up to this command and why we struggle with community. Because whether we believe it or not, we still have a radical sense of our radical individualism. And this is what I'm supposed to do, and nobody can touch it. You know, if you, if you speak to a, a Patu or a Tabang, um, then, then they will say, you know, growing up where they did, and if you went to school and you were naughty, you would have gotten a hiding from five different people. Now, now try and think, as a whitey living here in Pretoria, if the teacher hits you, what happens? Or just, you know, it, it is, you know, um, uh, nobody's allowed to tell my child. So in other words, we are very individualistic. It's my family. Nobody can have any input. How dare you even say that or look at my child in, in that way? And, and it's because of this, this radical individualism that we have here in Pretoria. And it's especially acute among, among white people. And, and a Christian understanding of community is that you need to allow considered people, not everyone, but you need to allow considered people to irritate you. 
That is your job. You need to allow people in your life who will tell you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear. You need that. There's this uh, famous uh, Greek mythology, the the person of Odysseus. Some of you might be familiar with him. And Odysseus um, is, is on the boat and he knows that he's about to go past the island of Sirens. And I don't know much about Greek mythology, but at least, you know, so the picture that I have in my mind is you've got the the sexy mermaids, and they sing, and it's very nice, and then Odysseus and all the sailors, they just want to go there very quickly, and then when they get there, they crash on the rocks, all right, so it's a trap. So Odysseus knows that it is coming, so he puts wax in the sailors' ears, and he tells them that they they must bind them to the ship. So they must put a rope around him so that he cannot move. And he's going to say, please, I want to go there. It sounds lovely. Maybe it's different this time. Um, uh, but, but don't allow me to go there because I know it's going to happen. He has people who are, and he, he gave them permission in community to irritate him because he knows that there's a weakness. He knows how it's going to end. And what we need is we need people who will tie us up when we know that we are about to encounter something or if we know that we've got a particular, what they call a begetting sin, our favorite sin. And most of the times, friends, the, your, your favorite sin are not necessarily sins that are obvious to you. You need somebody else who you can trust to pinpoint that sin in your life. And then, let's say, you know, a uh, you know, typical favorite is pornography, but it can be spending your money in a self-indulgent way. Spending your money on yourself. And you know that, eh, I tend to buy, you know, I, I tend to go to poetry a lot or, or whatever, and I, I definitely don't need all those things. Um, it can be forgiveness. It can be forgiveness. Um, I mean, recently I've just heard horrible, horrible stories of people you know, in, in a family that's just been so, so betrayed and it's very difficult for them to forgive those people. And I understand why it's so difficult for them to forgive the people involved. But in a community, you allow people to tie you up and say, I'm not going to want to forgive that person. Just know that. And it's going to say, eventually you have to. You need somebody who will tie you up and say, you cannot spend your money so self-indulgently. You need somebody to tie you up and say, you, you cannot go down this, this road um, of pornography and sexuality, it's, it's going to break you, it's going to hurt you. That is what Christian community is about. People who are willing to tie you up, people who are willing to, to stir you to do good works. And friends, this is, when we do this, when we are this community, and please don't, don't allow everyone, don't grab the microphone today, oh, well, you can if you want, but, but don't say, Guys, I really struggle with this. Please, tell me. I don't think that's, that's the idea. You need to get people here. Um, to, if you tell everybody, you're telling nobody, right? So I'm just going to think, oh, well, somebody will take care of that. Um, you, need, you, you need to find people that you trust, that you can share your story with, and they must walk this, this journey with you. Um, but if we get this right, we will be a radically different community, an alternative society in a country and in a world that, that desperately needs it. We will see God's reign happening in this small community. But the reality is, friends, that we cannot sustain that in isolation. It's a little bit like charcoal. If you, if you want to kill your fire, what do you do? 
you isolate the charcoal from each other, right? If you want the, the fire to sustain the heat, what do you do? Put them together. God's heat cannot be sustained in isolation. The only way to keep the heat is to be together. And it, that's also the only way in which we can make light that is sufficient enough for this dark world. If we do this, then, then we're going to change the world. David Brooks, he's a, he's a writer for the New York Times. Um, he's definitely not a Christian. He says, uh, culture change happens when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. It's as if the world is asking for people to just live different lives, to live radical lives. And people are desperate to, to, to copy us. Tony Campolo, he's a sociologist uh, in, in the States and a Christian speaker. And he's invited to go to Hawaii to speech there, to, 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 yeah, to make a speech there at a Christian conference or something. But he suffers from jet lag. I'm not sure who of you have ever had that experience, but it's totally bizarre. But at 3 a.m. in the morning, you are just so awake, ready to go. And it's, it's just very strange. So he's got jet lag and he's hungry. So he gets out in Honolulu and he's looking for food. Now, in most places, the nice places are closed by then. So he goes into this crummy alley. He sees there's some sort of you know, diner or something. And he goes there and he was very hungry when he went in, a little bit less hungry when he saw his options. Uh, but, but, but he's sitting there, 3 a.m. in Honolulu. And eventually, these ladies come in. Now, there are particular ladies who eat donuts at 3 a.m., in the mornings in Honolulu, and they are called prostitutes. So he realizes very quickly that, okay, this is sort of the place that the prostitutes frequent, that this is the place that they visit. And he listens to this one conversation, and there's a lady called Agnes. And Agnes says, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. And uh, the other lady says, oh, happy birthday tomorrow. Um, are you planning to do anything? She says, whatever, I've never had a birthday party in my life. I'm not gonna do anything. And Tony hears this, and he talks to the restauranteur. His name is Harry. He says, Harry, do you know these girls? And he says, yeah, they come here every night. He says, do you know that one Agnes? Yeah, I know her. He says, well, it's her birthday tomorrow, and I want to get a cake. Maybe we can get some decorations. Do you think it's possible for us to throw her a party? And he says, yeah, sure. He says, so, so Tony says, can you invite all her friends? Is there some sort of, I don't know, prostitute WhatsApp group that you can get all of them to... To, to come. And he says, yeah, sure, I can, I, can get them, I can get them here. So Tony says, I will get the decorations, I will get the cake. He says, deal. And when is the party? Tomorrow morning, 3 a.m., same place. So Tony gets uh, a cake that is decorated with happy birthday, Agnes, a couple of things on the wall, happy birthday, Agnes, and the friends are there, and when Agnes walks in there at 3 a.m., everybody surprises and say, happy birthday, Agnes. At which point, Agnes breaks down. She's not on her feet anymore. She's supposed to blow out the candles, but she cannot because she's sobbing, um, sort of changing the, the texture of the cake. Um, and eventually Harry blows out the, the candles. And uh, eventually when she can, can, can say something, they, they bring a, a, a knife and say, you must cut it. And she says, I cannot cut this cake. It's, it's my first birthday cake. I cannot cut this cake. It's good, good decoration. I'm really sorry, but is it okay if I keep the cake? I live just down the street. I'm going to put the cake there. I want to come back for the party, but I don't want to cut this cake. I want to keep this cake. Is it okay? And it's kind of weird, and they say, yeah, sure, keep the cake. So now everybody's standing there, 
and the surprise party has lost the person uh, and she ran away with the cake. So, so Tony is standing there and he decides, well, uh, he's going to say something. Nobody knows him. He says, uh, is it okay if I pray for Agnes? And people didn't really have a choice, so he prays. And he says, he prays that God will, um, will be good to her, that um, he prayed for her salvation and for her heart and everything. And eventually just, just said, amen. At which point Harry, the restaurant owner, looks at him and says, hey, you didn't tell me you're a preacher. You said you're a sociologist. What's going on here? What kind of church do you belong to anyway? And Tony says, in, in words that came to him, it was absolutely divinely inspired. It just came to him at that moment. He said, I belong to a church that throw birthday parties for hookers 3 a.m. in the morning. That's the kind of church that I belong to. Harry stood back, thought about it for a second, and he said, no, you don't. If a church like that existed, I would belong to that church. There's no such church. The reality is that that is the kind of church that Jesus planted. It is a church that, that, that spur, that annoy each other to live authentic lives, that do good to society, that is a light to the world. That is the kind of thing that we are called to do. But I fear that we've grown cold. And a big part of the reason why we've grown cold is because we are isolated. We're trying to follow Jesus in isolation. It doesn't work that way. We need to come together, and that's the only way in which we can sustain the heat of God. And it's the only way in which we can, in which we can live out this radical life to which he's called us as believers. So friends, on the one hand, I want to say perhaps it's time that we unsubscribe from fake, unhelpful online communities and online activities. Perhaps it's time that we unsubscribe from that. But also, perhaps it's time that we unsubscribe from this radical individualism. We come to this community. It can be this community, it can be any community, friends. I'm, uh, I mean, I, you are so welcome here, but if you are you know, rooted somewhere else, go be rooted there and allow people to see you and allow people to have radical input into your life. And then, what, who knows what God will be able to do through us as individuals and as a community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your saving work on the cross. We didn't reflect on it in detail, but we thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you that we are saved and we can be excited alongside the writer of Hebrews, of this, this mighty act of salvation. But Lord Jesus, the only way in which we can talk about this hope and sustain it and live it out is in community when we come together. And Lord, help us, help us to do it. It's now the beginning of a, of a new year and it might be a little bit easier to do it, but as soon as all the distractions and all the responsibilities come in, this is just one of the first things that we neglect. But it is our prayer this evening, Lord, that we will come together, that we will worship you, that we will gather around and try and follow you, and that we will allow other people into our lives so that we can stir each other on to good works. Lord, not only do we want to change, but we also want to be a force for good in this world. 
And it is our prayer, Lord, that Dialogue Community will really be that in 2022, that you will really work in our lives as individuals and as a community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.